morning, glory, America. It's you, Hewitt. Before I left on vacation, I decided I would ask Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, to join me for the insertion into my vacation week of a much-needed bit of Hillsdale Dialogue, www.hillsdale.edu, for all things Hillsdale College-related, including Imprimus, their magnificent, marvelous speech digest, including all the online courses, including the new online course about the Constitution, which Dr. Arn teaches. And if you go to hugh4hillsdale.com, you'll find all of our conversations, and we have spent many weeks on the Declaration of Independence. But, of course, it comes, then the war comes, then the war is won, and then they have to govern. And that's where we pick up the story in what I call the gray years, because none of my com, my com law students arrive and they know the declaration happened and they know 1787 happened, kind of, maybe, sort of. And then I start filling in. But we've got this period of time up until 1787. And I want to talk about that with you because it's, it's an interesting period of time. And you've written the Founders Key and their whole constitutional convention comes out of this period of time, Larry. Could you set up what is going on? Well, uh, so, you know, America happened by unplanned stages, and yet there was amazing deliberation in it, too. So the first thing that happens is the British in 1763 decide they're going to govern the colonies more closely than they had before, and they're going to tax them. We spent a lot of money over there. We just won a big war. We ought to get something out of it. We ought to turn this into a big act of policy. So the Americans don't like that at all. And the Americans are governed in discrete colonies, that were founded at different times. And each has texture. That's right. And each has a uniqueness to them. Yeah, they're, you know, they grow different things. Some are port, some are financial, some are... So it's a lot. Some have slaves, some do not. That's right. Big, big deal. Right. Most do at this time, by the way. So they, they, the crisis really happens in Boston, chiefly, chiefly, and, uh, and some in New York. And so Boston's a big port city and there's people killed and they start corresponding. And, you know, they don't really have a government in common except London. And so this correspondence ends up being people being sent from all of these colonies to Philadelphia to form first a dialogue, the, the, not the Hilldale, some other ones, but then a Continental Congress. And so... And they do it the way you would do it. They uh, they uh, all show up. They're all colonies. They've all the same. They've all got equal rights. They. What does they, George the Third think of this? By the way, this is when they're starting to get together and co- correspond. And what do the king's ministers think about this? Well, co- uh, contempt and anger. More contempt than anger for a long time. Big mistake. Yeah, big mistake. <laughs> you know they didn't. And and you know they were right. You know because first of all this was all kind of screwy, right? They've never done this before. They don't, you know, as a, as a unit, although the institutions of self-government in America are very advanced, probably the most advanced in the world at the colonial level. House of Burgess, you betcha. So they, uh, so they, they get together and they work out a way, and you know, it develops over the course of about, what, 17, 18 months into an actual war with the Declaration. There's fighting, and then there's the Declaration of Independence, which Names the names the purpose of the war, and so now they're running a war, and they don't really have an executive, and they and they the the Continental Congress doesn't really have any way to get any money except to appeal to the states, uh, the colony, the states they become now, and they and so the war is a mess, 
and uh, and they and you know in 1781, so the war is over. And they appoint George Washington. They do one good thing. They appoint George Washington, yeah. the commander in chief. That's right. Who showed up on the day they were picking, wearing his uniform. Yeah, very. Which he had not done on other days, and then he looked really good in his uniform. So there. So in 1781, John Dickinson, chiefly, who had refused to sign the Declaration of Independence earlier, is the chief author of the Articles of Confederation, and they are an advancement on the practices that have simply uh, grown up, but not a massive advancement. It's uh, each colony, each state now, uh, is to send some representatives between two and nine. Uh, uh, they are to, they, they can pass a budget, and they can requisition funds from the states, but it's up to the states to collect the funds. And it breaks out in during the And each war. state gets one vote. Yeah, each state gets one vote. That's right. So they can send nine, but they'll have to agree five to four, whatever, what their vote's going to be on anything. And, you know, there are instances where they don't have anybody. Rhode Island never sent anyone, right? That's why I've always said Rhode Island doesn't really belong in the Union. It shouldn't have two senators because they were obstinate. How would we do without... uh, Jack Reed and uh, uh, Claiborne Pell, but uh, the other one. Yeah. Can't remember. The Pell Grants. Oh, yeah. uh, Anyway, so, so... it's dysfunctional during the war, and that's why there's this really beautiful thing about George Washington at Newburgh, because they've won now the war. They won on the battlefield, right? They won at Yorktown, and the British are giving up, and it takes forever to get the peace conference together, so they still have to keep an army in the field, but they're continuing not to pay the army. And the reason is they send out requisitions, and you should read George Washington's letters to the Continental Congress, John Hancock, prominent in it, to get, you know, this is indecent and wrong. We are establishing our republic. We're defending the whole thing, and we don't get paid. And when we buy things from people, you know, to feed ourselves, and the people won't take our money. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So the articles weren't very good in the war, and then after 1783, when the Paris Climate Accords were signed. (laughs) 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 The the Treaty of Paris Climate Accords is its formal title. (laughs) Now we've got a country recognized, although the British kept messing with us for years after that. Um, um, They... they, Now now we have the Article of Confederation. They've been ratified by 1781, and they're and we're operating under them, and we don't pay our bills. And, uh, you know, James Madison writes a very great thing that's in our Constitution Reader that everybody should read called The Vices of the Political System of the United States, which lays out the case for a better Constitution. And he, he just points out a lot of things which basically amount to we're a laughing stock, and, and we don't pay our bills. We borrow money from powers that have been extremely friendly to us, and we don't pay it back. We stiff them. In Massachusetts, in particular, there are roving gangs, bands out in the country, and on the days when mortgage payments are due, people are supposed to pay off their mortgages for their debts, for their land, they show up and shut down the banks. And they're impeding commerce, and it's terrible. Mr. Shea. It's Shea's rebellion, right? And, and so there's... It's 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 absurd, and and so there's a you know and and people think oh and you talk about what do the British think during this period 
what the British think is, I told you so. And they'll come back. They can't. And, and that's what really sticks in the craw of a lot of people. You can read the correspondence among Hamilton and Madison and Washington about this because the British are saying these ordinary folk could never have done this by themselves. Watch them fail. And that really ticks them off. When we come back from break, we got to talk about Washington and his declining of the temptation. And what George III thought about him declining the temptation. Yeah. Because it actually sets up the return of Washington. Uh, so don't go anywhere, America. The uh, the Hillsdale Dialogues are all collected at HughForHillsdale.com. HughForHillsdale.com. And uh, let me clue you in on a couple other things. I'll be right back with Dr. Arndt. What I want to clue you in is I will be back uh, next week and uh, at the end of next week. Uh, and hopefully we'll have Dr. Arn live again and we will continue our conversation. But I also want to remind you of Sierra Pacific Mortgage, Sierra Pacific Mortgage. Right before I left on vacation, um, we got ready to move. We were moving inside the Beltway from the tiny place we moved into when we got back here last year to a little bit slightly bigger place with a real kitchen. Uh, and so that's complicated, and there's all sorts of stuff when you move twice within a year, and it's all... It, I just turned it over to Andrew Del Rey Todd of Vacant and their team in Sierra Pacific, and I went on vacation. And you can do that if you're using Sierra Pacific Mortgage because you can trust them to get it done. 888-888-1172. 888-888-1172. Believe me when I say. Andrew, I've known for 20-plus years... Uh, been in my men's small group at my church for a long, long time. Guys, I've known so well. Uh, you walk through life with for two decades, you get to know someone really well. And you get to not even worry about them having your back when you're gone and you're, you're buying a house. That's what Andrew Del Rey is. So listen, if you're a senior citizen and you just are strapped because, you know, you haven't got enough money to make ends meet, but you're sitting in a house that's, that's more than half paid off and maybe all paid off, give Andrew and Todd and their team a call and say, I hear about reverse mortgages. I need to talk to you about how do I get money out of my house, get an assurance of never having to leave my house, and I never have to make a mortgage payment again. Never have to make a mortgage payment again. You get money out of your house, and you are assured of a life estate. That's Todd and Andrew and their team. 888-888-1172. 888-888-1172. Call them, and then stay tuned. I'll be right back here on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Hugh for Hillsdale.com. See you, Hugh Show. Welcome back, American Hugh Hugh. And I'm actually in Ireland. But before I left, I wanted to get started on a discussion about the Articles of Confederation with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, because there's a period in American history between the conclusion of the Revolutionary War and the convening in Philadelphia of the Great Convention that is little understood nor much noted. And there are at least a three events I know, and I want Dr. Arn to talk about these, all things Hillsdale, hillsdale.edu, uh, all these conversations collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. One is when the Army isn't getting paid and George Washington is in charge. Tell us that story, Dr. Arn. It's always so, important to hear. So they, uh, Rick Brookheiser, in a book called Founding Father, uh, a biography of, of uh, George Washington writes beautifully about this, so I'll tell the story the way he does. Um, the officers are, you know, they, they, they've, they've been miserable and indignant all through the war, but now they've won. And so they've got prestige, and they can't get paid. And so they work up a plan, it goes around, uh, that they're going to pick up their wives and children, livestock, and move out west and start over on their own and leave all these people back here to stew in their own devices, which is an interesting idea, right? In other words, we're not going to use force to tyrannize them, but we're just going to take off, leave them denuded, 
let the British come back, take them over, right? And so another thing goes on at about the same time in the camp at Newburgh, where they all are waiting for a peace treaty to get signed. And, uh, and uh, that thing is a circular goes around about George Washington should be appointed king as the, uh, as the uh, remedy to this chaos. Put him in charge. We all love him. So he forcefully repudiates this claim of king. But then they, a letter gets composed. It's in draft form and going around various versions of it that they're going to send to the Congress about this threat that they'll take off if they don't get their dough. And so George Washington finds out that his officers are, are going to hold a meeting to discuss this. And the first thing he does is he moves the meeting. He changes the time and the place of the meeting, which means now he's taking control of it. He doesn't tell them whether he's coming or not. Uh, and they, they gather, and they, and they start, and he walks in. And, of course, it's just like in the cabinet later after the Constitution is passed and George Washington is president. They behave much worse when he's not around. Yes. <laughs> so, and so he, so they, uh, so he asked to speak, and he famous thing. He uh, he reads this thing out about being the king, and he repudiates that, and he gets out his spectacles and says, "I've grown old in the service of my country and almost blind." And uh, it's an actor, you know. He go. He went to see Senate. Uh, what did he see? Uh, was it? Um, uh, the great Roman, the play that he would Cato. go to. Cato. He'd go to see Cato again and again and again, oh, yeah. right? So he's he just, a theater guy. Oh, man. He's just... And, you know, he why, why you know, an usually tall man, especially for those times, right, over six feet tall, and why would a guy... See, he was, you know, very handsome man, but also he was a horseman, and he had big, strong, powerful horses, and he could ride them in battle without using the reins. He could ride them with his legs and his feet. And so he was an incredibly striking man. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when they're going to pick a general in the Continental Congress, he shows up, he, and see, it wouldn't be like George Washington to recommend himself for anything ever, except it would be just like him to show up in his military uniform, right, looking great. And like they were talking about John Hancock, Right to be the commander in chief, and uh, John Adams, who was very influential, uh, you know, ap- appointed Jefferson to write the Declaration of Independence, and Washington to be the help help get him to be the commander. And what's that about? The scene of action is up in Massachusetts. Virginia is a huge and important place down in the South. Get these Virginians. Involved. Get them into the war. Get them in the war. Like Churchill wanted FDR in the war later. That's right. Get That's them in. Drag them in, right? So it's a... Uh, so Hold it. We'll come right back. George Washington's putting on his glasses, and it matters a lot for the next six years. Stay tuned. It's the Hewitt Show, the Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu. And all you young students out there who are, you know, lining up to go to Hillsdale, get your application in early, please. Don't wait long. Get it all in there early because it's getting so doggone popular. You're going to have to fight your way into Hillsdale College this year. So go get your application at hillsdale.edu. And if you're too old to go to college, go to college via their online courses or via all these dialogues collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Dr. Arn at Newburgh. The uh, American Army is gathered waiting for the... 
peace treaty to be signed. They wanted to make Washington king. He said no. Uh, now they want to head out west, and they pass around a letter, and he puts on his glass that I'm grown old in the service of my country and nearly blind. And what's he say to him? He says, uh, think of the glory that you've won and that you would sacrifice by marching like a mob on Congress in mutiny. Think of the harm that would come to your property and maybe your families. And uh, then he said, uh, think of the cause for which you fought. He said, remember all that. This wondrous thing has happened. We won. And look at what you're sacrificing. And then he says, and see, this is his way. He's just so awesome, a human being. He says, in this matter of your pay, I will be your servant. He's showing him an example, see. I will work on this. You are right about this. I will work on this. I will do what I can. In the meantime, George III, as you said in the last segment, thinks it's all going to fall apart and is waiting on it. And he's told that Washington won't take the crown. How does he react to that? Because I think it's important for well, it's people a, to know that. It's, a, it's an old story, and because of its age and because of the, of the persistence of it, uh, it is a, a widely believed story, and I believe it, although there's no source for it. Interesting. Uh, so, uh, but he is... Uh, George III is said, uh, reminded by his ministers that it's time to staff up this peace conference, which means he's lost the new world, right? He says, uh, George Washington will not know how to be a king. He will be a tyrant, and they will ask me back. And uh, the prime minister, no, they didn't have those then, the, tre- the, the treasury minister, first lord of the treasury, was he yes. called that? yes. He says, uh, I understand that General Washington is resigning his commission and going home. And uh, and see, remember the assumption of George III. If, you're, if you win a conquer in war, you get to be king. That's how you get there. That's yeah. how his ancestors got there, right? Yep. Uh, or many of his predecessors did. So then he, he says, he shook himself, the story goes, and said, if he does that, he's the greatest man alive. You see, and that is exactly what he, what he did. Does. And that, even if it is a myth, the myth is a story that is intended to be believed, but that it has purchased all through the centuries, has given us, you know, people tell stories because they have a somewhere back there is truth. And Washington does go home. I, I live on his property now mm-hmm. uh, on occasion. And I I believe that uh, uh, he, he was called, he wanted to be a farmer, and he just loved being a farmer. And all of everybody goes home. I don't know who staffs up the Congress, but Madison goes home. And occasionally shows up. And then things go to hell. And the Potomac goes to hell, especially in a hurry. And people are charging each other tariffs, et cetera. So who gets the credit for thinking we can get ourselves out of this? You mentioned Madison's Devices uh, uh, essay. But who gets the real credit for organizing the Annapolis Conference? Or actually maybe even the Potomac Conference? Well, uh, you know, first of all, widespread discontent and... uh I should mention here a very great academic achievement by my colleague Thomas G. West, who's just published with uh, Cambridge University Press, The Political Theory of the American Revolution. And it's a lifetime work, and it's oh, it's just really great. And uh, I'm, I'm halfway through it. And if he falls off in the second half, I'm going to disavow him. But, 
But it is. Uh, pressure. He's a very serious pressure. man, and he's uh, he's achieved this thing. And the point of the book is the amazing unity of the American Revolution, which means, of course, hot disputes all the time. I mean, in the first administration under the Constitution, Thomas Jefferson is using State Department funds to hire a journalist to write dirty articles about Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury. They fight like cats and dogs. But about the meaning, purpose of the revolution, and about the kind of government they should have, there is a very wide agreement. Uh, they dispute, and they don't get right at first, because it, it, about the articles, you, you have to remember that they were just written up in a Congress that was forming out of nothing and in the midst of war pressure, right? So, and then one of the claims that Madison makes against them in the vice of the political system is, and remember, these articles were really in most states uh, only really ratified by the state legislature. Not by the people. Yeah. And that means that the articles are not in those states in a condition to be a superior law to both empower and check the ordinary operations of the government doesn't meet the fundamental criteria. About that fundamental criteria, there is very wide agreement across the board. Now, of course, many people, in fact, I, I, I fancy all people, Hamilton and Madison included, they, they know what it's like to have a remote central government run by a king telling you what to do, that nobody wants to reproduce that. So you're going to have, and all of that, and just remember, that's just a form of the fundamental political problem. Because the fundamental political problem is, how do you assemble enough power to protect what politics is supposed to protect and yet have it not oppress those things too? It's like judo or some trick you've got to pull. You've got to find a way to make the government strong. In fact, the strongest single earthly thing it has to be, and yet restrained. And so they're groping around about that. And also remember, nobody had ever been built before a government responsible entirely to the, what Madison loved to call the great body of the people. Uh, in America, we do not have the mixed regime in which the aristocrats mix in with the commoners, and there's a monarch, and they all have their way. And they, and they have divide, the clergy. And they divide, divide up their power. We don't have that. All of the powers are drawn from a single source. How do you draw those powers enough to do the job and not so much that they become formidable to the people? I believe myself, by the way, to hark back to last week, that we are facing a crisis about that right now because the government has become so large that it is an interest of its own. And you have been saying that quite a long time. Will the people rule the government? Will the government rule the people? That's, that is the question on the table. Churchill's great dichotomy. He just loved that. There are countries where governments own peoples and countries where peoples own governments. And you want to live in the second. Yes, second. Yeah. And so, so the articles um, are, are failing. And it looks ridiculous. And you should people should know that if you read the Federalist Papers, which you must, and read the key anti-Federalist Papers, they're in our Constitution Reader, you will discover that there is a consensus across the board that the central government needs to be strengthened. Because what? Because uh, they can only requisition, they can only send out an order allocated by your land and your number of your people by a formula, you owe this much for this purpose, and then... They don't pay the money. 
what are you going to do? And so they, they can't get any money. And then, you know, you send to them and say, we have a rebellion in, uh, out in the West. And yeah. in, 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 in Massachusetts, we have one out in Ohio later. And nobody sends troops. And so they can't. And the state can't put these things down. You have the, the tribes are warring on the frontier. You have judiciaries of different states holding to different codes of law. And who owns the property? And Great Britain is meddling. States taxing imports into their ports, which means taxing other states, which, they're not, which they were not to do under the articles, says don't. And uh, states uh, making treaties with other countries on their own. And the Potomac. Impassable to trade because it hasn't been improved because Maryland and Virginia cannot agree. That's right. So the first thing to do, something practical, it just harkens back to last week. When you got big problems, do something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Get to work on them. So there are two conferences that lead up to the Constitutional Convention in 1787. And uh, both of them, uh, none of the, neither of them is attended by all the states. But in general, when they all get together and get to talking they find fellow feeling on these questions and they call for a constitutional convention and and that's because of the failure of the articles and when they do that uh, and that's where we're going to pick up uh next week when we come back to this we're going to pick up with philadelphia in may of 1787 uh, and that's when people begin to assemble there we look backwards with certainty that they're going to succeed so we know the miracle of philadelphia is going to happen but they they ride up from Virginia. I don't even know how they made a living, honest to goodness. All these people are just coming up to Philadelphia and they stay there all summer and they gotta pay the tavern people and they're you know, they they got tobacco and stuff like that going on. But they really throw themselves into a proposition for which there's no guarantee and a lot of downside. They could stay on their farm and they get Washington to go and it connects up with, with last week when we're talking about this. Washington agrees to go, and that's very crucial. Yeah. Can't do it without him, and uh, and you know there, you know. By the way, the the uh, founding fathers' histories are littered with bankruptcies. Yes, <laughs> some of the, like, even the richest ones would go bankrupt. Governor Morris, you know, these guys are always going broke. Edmund Randolph, you know, and they got first attorney general. They yep. got more money than anybody, and then they're broke. Yeah. And and you know, then they it's America, right? They start over, but uh, but so that's right. They it. By 1787, now there's a serious call for a convention. And it goes through the Continental Congress. And through, sorry, now the, uh, the um, Confederation Congress, it's called. And, uh, and the people gather to amend the Articles of Confederation. But that was, that was what they're supposed to do. That's what they're supposed to do. And about Washington, it's important. So uh, James Madison was a... He really came into his greatness in this period, in my opinion. Hamilton, too. Uh, uh, Madison was a squirrely little guy and uh, had been very close to Thomas Jefferson in the Virginia legislature. And, and Jefferson was tall and uh, taciturn and uh, uh, in, in conversation, but fluent in writing. You know, beautiful. We've read on the dialogues with many beautiful things he wrote. Madison is this little logical guy. He's five foot, you know, two or something. You know, so think of him as like... Little George. Jimmy. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and uh, he's a student, and he really reasons closely. And one of the first things he reasoned about was, we got to get George Washington there. 
And it's worth saying something about how he did it. Wait, we'll come back after the break in the last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. How do you get Washington to Philadelphia for the convention? See there, America, you didn't get rid of me. Even when I'm in Ireland, I'm in your head. Because uh, I pre-taped this conversation with Dr. Larry Arn last week so that we could get to the Constitutional Convention when I get back. And uh, he'll have time to prepare. He doesn't know much about that. And so he's going to have to... <laughs> think it through. Yeah, think it through. So anyway, we're talking about Jim, James Madison has got a call for a convention, but he's got to get Washington there, and how does he do that? Well, Washington is the greatest man alive. It's sort of what Winston Churchill became in England and maybe in the world in 1940 and after. Uh, and that's, you know, recognized, right? And so they can't. And so Washington is skittish. And uh, this thing comes up about the Society of the Cincinnatus, because what that is is a bunch of veterans of the Revolutionary War who get together named after this Roman statesman who refused power after winning victories. And so this society has these meetings, and of course Washington is the hero, the one they really want. And uh, it gets in the press that there are criticisms that it's thought to be a burgeoning aristocratic movement. And Washington does not like people talking bad about him. And so he declines to go to a meeting of the Society of the Cincinnati. And uh, then he thinks... But I don't want to embarrass them either. So if I go somewhere else during the time of their meeting, it'll look like I snubbed them. And so he allows that he's not going to go. To the convention. <laughs> to the convention. Where we need him. Yeah. And so James Madison gets on his horse, you know, with a stepladder probably, and he rides to Mount Vernon, and he talks him into and it's it. a long way. Yeah. It's he, not like an easy, you know, run down the street for coffee. No, it's a long Where way. Where are you going, says Dolly? And he says, I'm going to go get George. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, so he does talk him into it. And then Washington goes. And that means, you see, because remember this point. The problem we're trying to solve, the problem we're trying to solve today is the same one then. They need to assemble power to govern and use force against evils and enemies and they need a system for it to be restrained and George Washington is the actual living personification of that thing he's got to be there and when they get there they need to have a starting point the Virginia plan is that starting point so Madison did not arrive unprepared to propose yeah so uh, Senator Lee a force of nature I promised I'd, I'd uh, mention his book, A Force of Nature. He's really great. He's a very important man, and he's got another book out. And uh, 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 withdrawn, written out of history. Written, yes, out, written of history. out of history. And he's 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 talking about the heroes who are not the main ones. Senator Mike Lee, of yeah, Utah. That's, yeah, that's of Utah. And he's commenting that, of course, those who suspected too much power in Washington shaped the Constitution very much, too. And I will add to his point that those who suspected too much power in Washington included everyone. They all did that, right? And so they show up with a plan written chiefly by Madison and, and Hamilton that would allow the federal government to uh, legislate in all cases whatsoever, not enumerated powers. That, that was their phrase. But in addition that uh, that uh, both houses of the legislature would be elected by popular vote. And that is the first concept. That's the starting point. Yeah. Now, I, w I, I want to just lay this. we got two minutes left. At the Annapolis Convention, 
where both Hamilton and Madison met the year prior to the Constitutional Commission. Did they conspire then? I don't know the history well enough. Did they conspire then to pull off, we'll open with a big bid for power and then back up? Or did they just say, let's get everybody there and we'll do the best we can? There's no evidence of that. Uh, they, they want, you know, they, and, and the point that people must understand, the reason this is worth studying is that it's not just that it is the most successful thing of its kind in history. That's not an accident. Because what they did all summer long was reason through. And they taught each other a lot. And we have extensive notes about the way the debate went. Made by Madison. And, yeah. then, and, and then when you get to the Federalist Papers, the way they write about the document after the convention is different from the things they were writing in their letters to one another before the convention. They learned a lot. And above all, I think what they did was invent a way to use the old attachment and the serious authorities of the states as another element in the system to both assemble and divide power. When we come back in two weeks, as we're both off next week, we will begin the conversation about that convention and how it lasted and how it went. You may want to read... um, uh, Lynn Cheney's uh, uh, James Madison. You may want to read Phil- Miracle Philadelphia or Dr. Larry Arnn's The Founder's Key. Uh, there are a lot of good books about mm-hmm. those extraordinary four months, but they are an extraordinary four months. So we'll do that, and then we'll move into the argument about how it got passed. But we're going to talk actually about the Constitution. It's a marvelous thing. Yeah, <laughs> we're actually going to read it Let's and talk about up. it. Yeah. And then, you know, that's going to be a revelation to some people out there, Steelers fans especially. Dr. Larry Arnn, thank you. Hey, I'll be back in a week, America. Don't miss the coming and the going of the guest host next week. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, General Lissimo, for keeping the house together while I'm gone. And remember, all the Hillsdale's dialogues are collected at you for Hillsdale.com, Hillsdale.edu for the course on the Constitution. We will pick up when I return from abroad exactly there, May 1787. Stay with us, stay healthy, and talk to you in two weeks. <laughs>